Well, we are in our very last Grace on Campus of the year, and I know that uh, it's this time of year where it's very difficult to stay awake during sermons. It's been a long year. We're at the very end of it. It's been a long week of studying and writing papers, and you haven't been getting a lot of sleep because finals are just around the corner, so I know that it may be tempting to doze off a little bit tonight. And I definitely have mercy on you. Uh, I, too, don't have a perfect track record in staying awake for sermons. I, too, have dozed off before. Uh, But I think it's very interesting uh, for me, now that I'm on this side of the pulpit, to see all of you in the different ways that you fall asleep during sermons and in the many ways that you try your best to stay awake. Many people wonder, I wonder if the preacher can see me. He probably can't see me. There's so many people. I am staring at you for 45 minutes. So yes, I can see you. And like I said, it's been very interesting to see you fall asleep during sermons. Uh, you, you have some, some stereotypical sleepers, right? I think the most common one would be the nodder, right? The nodder. And then you have the nodder who tries to play it off. Mm -hmm. Yes, I agree. Yes. Good point, preacher. Uh, You have um, the leaner, right? The leaner. Hopefully you're not sitting next to a leaner today. Uh, you have, uh, this, this, this is my personal favorite move. Uh, it's a risky one, but it is my favorite one. And it is the elbow on the thigh, right? Trying to prop your head up, elbow on the thigh. So it's good. You get some nice support here, but risky because you fall asleep. Oh, hey, 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 I'm good, I'm good. Uh, so you got to be careful with the elbow on the thigh, uh, you have the, the person who tries their best to stay awake, but really just ends up doing eyebrow push-ups. The eyebrow push-ups. Uh, and finally, you have the guy. Uh, it's always a guy. The guy who just gives up, right? Always in the back, arms crossed, forget it, good night. So, again, I have all the mercy in the world for you knowing that we're headed into finals week, but just remember, I am watching you. Uh, So with that, go ahead and turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, and we're going to look at verses 18 to 25 this evening. Now, this year we began our study on the book of Romans which many have called the greatest letter ever written. We took a break for most of this quarter to study evangelism, and now we're right back in Romans. Here in this last Friday of the school year, we're going to be finishing up Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, starting in verse 18 to the end of the chapter. Uh, The Apostle Paul writes, speaking of Abraham, in hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised 
for our justification. At the very beginning of our study of the book of Romans, I told you that in order to keep the big picture of this book in your head, you could divide Romans into two major parts, right? Chapters 1 to 11, doctrine. Chapters 12 to 16, duty. Chapters 1 to 11, calling. Chapters 12 to 16, conduct. 1 to 11, belief. 12 to 16, behavior. Or, if you're not down with alliteration, you could say that chapters 1 to 11 is what is true. Chapters 12 to 16 is what you must do. And that just helps you keep the big picture in mind. If you want a more detailed breaking down of this outline, you can break it down into four different parts, and this will help you navigate your way through the book as well. Uh, Chapters 1 through 4, you could call justification by grace, and that's what we're finishing in our first year. Next year, we'll begin to look at the second major section, chapters 5 to 8, which is living under grace, and then chapters 9 to 11, God's plan of grace, and finally, chapters 12 to 16, a church shaped by grace. Now, at the beginning of the year, I also emphasized that you could crystallize your understanding of each chapter by giving it a one-word summary. So we've done chapters one through four. Do you guys remember what those one-word summaries are? Chapter one starts with a D. Depravity, correct. Uh, We entered the tunnel of sin darkness and man's deep depravity. And then chapter two, what was that word? Hypocrisy. Uh, We found that we have a lot more in common with a hypocritical Jewish person than we might think. A Jewish person has the law, knows the law, but doesn't practice the law. And in a similar way, we have the Bible. You have multiple Bibles lots of Bibles. You have the Bible on your phone. You know the Bible. You've memorized verses in the Bible, but you fail to practice what's in the Bible. And thus, we are hypocritical, and yet we call ourselves godly, and we call ourselves spiritual, even though we don't actually practice what we know. That's hypocrisy, another layer to our depravity. Uh, Chapter 3, the word J word, justification. Though we are depraved hypocrites, there is grace. Uh, We finally get out of that dark tunnel in chapter 3, verse 21. Uh, There's good news. There is hope of being right with God. There is hope of obtaining a righteousness apart from the law, a righteousness that is through faith, which is what chapter 4 is all about. The word for chapter 4 is faith. Chapter 4 teaches us what faith is and what faith is not. It teaches us what faith is, what our faith is in, why faith is so important, how to have more faith, and why faith matters in this life and into eternity. I want you to take a sneak peek at an important couple of verses to see where we're headed today. Uh, Take a look at verses 23 and 24. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. We're going to be talking a lot about Abraham tonight, but keep in mind that Moses recorded the story of Abraham in the book of Genesis, not just for Abraham, but for us. Keep in mind, because uh, this is where we're headed. We're going to talk a lot about Abraham tonight, but in verse 23, we're going to get transported back out of the ancient Near East into more 100 on June 8th, 2018, because this passage is for you. 
In Romans 4, Abraham is just the illustration. Uh, Abraham is the giant arrow that points to your own heart. So Paul wants you to take chapter 4 personally. And he wants to see yourself in the life of Abraham. So let's take a look. Uh, Flip back to Genesis chapter 15. And we'll look at the story of Abraham. Abraham was not originally called Abraham, but Abram, meaning father of many. And with a name like that, people probably went up to him and assumed that he had at least some, if not many, children. Anyone that he ever did commerce with. Uh, any extended relatives that he had, anybody he ever ran into would say, oh, what a great name, Abram, father of many. How many do you have? None. And as embarrassing as that would have been for him to admit, it would have been even more embarrassing for Sarah, his wife, to admit that she had no children because in many ways a woman's life was wrapped up in the home and having children. And so you can imagine the kinds of things that people would say, the gossip, the whispers that Abraham and Sarah would have heard. His name is father of many, but he has none. Wonder which one the problem is. Is it Abraham or is it Sarah? Is Abraham really a man? What has Sarah done that's so bad that God has cursed her not to give her any kids? But then, in chapter 15, everything changes. Genesis 15, verses 1 to 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, What will you give me, for I continue childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven. And number the stars, if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. God comes to Abram and says, I'm going to give you a great inheritance And Abram says, great, I'll enjoy the inheritance, and then I'll pass it off to my servant man, Eliezer, because I don't have any kids. And God says, you will have your own son. And then he takes Abram outside into the darkness of night. He says, Abram, look up and look at the stars. Count them if you can. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And then, verse 6, an extremely important verse in the Old Testament. And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. Verse 6 is Abram's conversion. Uh, Verse 6 is where Abram gets saved. Verse 6 is where I always take people when they ask me how Old Testament people got saved. They ask, did people in the Old Testament get saved by works? Did people in the Old Testament get saved by keeping the law? Did people in the Old Testament get saved by doing animal sacrifices? And I take them to this verse and say, no, it's been by believing. It's by faith. And it's always been this way. That's how God always designed it. So God justifies Abraham on the spot. He counts his belief as righteousness. He imputes righteousness to him. More on that later. 
So Abram believes, and he and Sarah wait for this child, and then they wait some more, they wait some more, they wait, they wait, they wait until they can't wait anymore, and they take matters into their own hands. 16, verses 1 to 4. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar, And Sarai said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, And she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. The two women start fighting. And end of chapter 16, verses 15 to 16. And Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael. To Abram. Now they knew who the problem was. It was Sarah. She was the infertile one. She was the barren one. So this is not according to God's plan, and God comes once again to Abram and pays him a visit, promises him a son yet again. Chapter 17, verse 5. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. God gives him a new name. He adds the ha in there, which means multitudes or formally nations. Abraham now is not just the father of many, but the father of many multitudes, the father of many nations. This name is even more embarrassing than the first one. And yet he takes on the name in faith, believing that this is what God is going to do. But that visit from God was not a great day for Abraham. Uh, He did take the name on and in belief, but he messed up toward the end. Chapter 17, verses 15 to 17. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and worshipped. It's not what it says. Fell on his face and laughed. And said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He laughs. He's a hundred years old. If you were a hundred years old and you had this message from the Lord, you'd probably laugh too. God visits them again in chapter 18, affirms the promise, and this time Sarah laughs, Genesis 18, 12. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? She's 90. There's no way their faith is weak. But God delivers on his promise. Chapter 21, verses 1 to 2. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. So, here is the story of Abraham. Here is our model of faith. Now let's turn back to Romans chapter 4. 
and in Abraham, we're going to see four characteristics of Christian faith. Four characteristics of Christian faith. First, the Christian faith is counterintuitive. The Christian faith is counterintuitive, verses 18 to 19. Take a look. Right off the bat, we have a statement that summarizes how counterintuitive Abraham's faith was. Verse 18, in hope he believed against hope. He hoped against hope. When he had no reason to hope, he hoped. When hoping was unreasonable, when it went against everything that he thought, he hoped. He hoped when it didn't look very hopeful. He believed when things appeared unbelievable. When God came to him in Genesis chapter 15 and told him, you're going to be the father of many nations, took him out into the dead of night to look up and see that starry night and then said, verse 18, so shall your offspring be. That's crazy. That's ridiculous. That's impossible. Verse 19, he considered his own body, which was as good as dead. He contemplated his hundred-year-old body and said, yeah, that's not going to happen. Uh, his own evaluation of his body is that it's as good as dead. And then he also contemplated the barrenness of Sarah's womb. The Greek word for barrenness is literally deadness. Paul is making a connection here. Abraham's body is dead, and Sarah's womb is dead. Remember, Sarah had been infertile her whole life. And so even in her 20s and in her 30s, she, she had a dead womb. Now she's 90. So her womb is doubly dead. So Abraham's looking at the situation here. I imagine Abraham and Sarah sitting on their porch in rocking chairs as old, old people. Well, it's getting late. It's almost six o'clock. It's time for bed. <laughs> they head into the house and play a little bingo. They use their canes to walk to their bed, put their dentures into a glass of water. As Abraham's head pits, hits the pillow, he just says, how is this ever going to happen? How is this ever going to happen? And yet, when he considered these things, verse 19, he did not weaken in the faith. Abraham believed God even when it was really, really hard to believe him, even when it was counterintuitive. So we find an example for our faith as well. We too are to trust in a God who makes a promise that is counterintuitive. Confess your sin, pray to God, cry out to God for mercy, trust in him, and you will be saved. That's the promise. There's something very counterintuitive about that. I don't know about that. I don't know about this gospel. Just believe. There's got to be more to it. I got to do something, right? I got I to gotta do something. You see, in our own thinking, in our own logic, in our own rationale, we think that it's the good people who go to heaven. If there is salvation, if there is a heaven, if there is a holy God and a perfect place that he dwells in, then he is going to bring the good people there, the people who are trying their best to be perfect, the people who are trying their best to be holy. Those are the ones who are going to get there. See, that's what we naturally think. Uh, that's what's intuitive. And that's what 
Abraham thought too. I got to do something. It's a nice promise and all, but I got to do something. And that's where, where the whole Hagar thing comes in. I have to take this into my own hands to make sure I get this son. And that's why in big church, we learn in Galatians 4 that Ishmael is likened to keeping the law and likened to Mount Sinai where the law was given, uh, being a slave to the law. And on the other hand, Isaac is likened to believing a promise and the new Jerusalem, a.k.a. heaven, which is where those who believe the promise will go. See, that's how it works in salvation. We don't work. We get a promise. And God delivers on that promise by his power and by his grace. And we simply believe. God says to Abraham, just believe me. Just believe. Trust. Depend. Lean upon. Throw yourself on me. And God comes to us and says the same thing. Just believe. Trust. Depend. Lean upon. Throw your whole weight on me. Pastor John has said that there are only two religions in the world. The religion of human effort and the religion of divine accomplishment. And all other religions are in the first category, the religion of human effort, trying to earn your way to heaven, and only Christianity is in the second category, the religion purely of divine accomplishment. And in our own thinking, naturally, with our own intuition, we lean toward the first one. that I have to do something if God's going to accept me. But this text shatters that notion as this perfect God says, if you want to be with me in my perfect heaven, just believe because I have already accomplished salvation on my own. It's counterintuitive. doesn't seem right. And that's why it requires faith. And let's continue to learn about this faith. The second characteristic of Christian faith is that it grows over time. First part of verse 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith. Now, if you've noticed, there's some really strong language used to describe Abraham's faith in this passage. Verse 19, we saw he did not weaken in the faith. Verse 20, no unbelief made him waver. Verse 21, he was fully convinced. Now that's all great. And you can look at those phrases and say, wow, his faith was strong. And, and that's the kind of faith that I want. That's something to aspire to. And you'd be right. A faith that doesn't weaken, a faith that doesn't waver, a faith where I'm fully convinced. That's what I want. But you also read those phrases and you think back and say, okay, Paul, have you ever read Genesis Because Abraham's faith wasn't perfect. What about the laughing? What about the whole Hagar, Ishmael scene? So in one sense, Abraham's faith does waver at times. But though he had doubts at times, though at times his faith was weak and small, that doesn't mean that it wasn't genuine. And another key phrase here, look at the middle of verse 20, he grew strong in his faith. Faith grows over time. Paul can't mean that Abraham had this 100% perfect faith because here he says his faith grew. It began small, then it got bigger. It began weak and then got stronger. His faith went through trials and difficulties, but none of these trials or difficulties were the death of his faith. On the contrary, they were used of God to strengthen his faith. So that, verse 20, Paul is able to say that Abraham grew strong in his faith. 
Again, Abraham is an illustration for us. Our faith grows over time. Strong, robust faith is not something you have a day after you get saved, a month after you get saved, or even a year after you get saved, faith grows over time. Faith always starts off small. Faith always starts off the size of a mustard seed and then slowly grows into a big tree. Like Abraham, times of doubt will come for us as Christians. Now, there will be times where you will struggle with doubt, and there will be times where you're laying on your bed and you're half thinking, half praying, God, is this real? It's counterintuitive. It sounds too good to be true. Just believe in Jesus and I'm saved. I get to go to heaven. Just, just not sure if this is real. Do I really believe all of this? And this doubt may go on for some time. This doubt may cause you to do some stupid things, some sinful things, just like Abraham. But like he did with Abraham, God can use your doubt to actually strengthen your faith. You see, doubt forces us to think more and think more deeply. Doubt forces us back into the word of God. Doubt forces us to our knees in prayer. Doubt forces us to talk to people about it to research about it. Doubt forces us to do whatever we need to do to gain assurance, to find answers, and to find the assurance that we so long for. In many ways, doubt is like getting a flu shot. The flu vaccine introduces viruses into your body, but in the end, your body creates antibodies which make your immune system stronger. And so when you get that shot, it hurts, and the virus that's introduced to your body actually makes you feel bad and weak for a day or two. But in the end, your immune system is stronger. In the end, you're, you're, more, you're, you're less susceptible to, to attacks. And so while doubt isn't going to feel good, and it seems like it's hurting your faith initially, in the end, God can use that doubt to make your faith stronger, more resilient. The important thing is that you act on your doubt. Uh, don't just sweep it under a rug. Don't hope that it goes away on its own. But be driven to prayer. Be driven to the word. Be driven to think and think deeply. Be driven to have conversations and seek counsel. And God can use all of that to make your faith stronger. Faith works through the struggle. Faith is able to get stronger through wrestling. True faith gets battered around, but in the end it stands firm. So be encouraged tonight that a struggling faith doesn't equal a dead faith. In fact, a struggling faith may lead to a stronger faith in the end. Let's look at the third characteristic of Christian faith, and that is that it glorifies God. Christian faith glorifies God. End of verse 20 to verse 21. That last phrase in verse 20, as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Through his faith, Abraham glorified God. He made God look really good. How? Verse 21, by being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 100-year-old men don't have babies. God comes to you as a 100-year-old man and says, you're going to have a son. How do you make God look really good in that moment? Believe him. That he is able to do this outrageous promise. 
Let me give you an illustration for this. Summer is coming up, and Nathaniel, my four-year-old, is going to take swim lessons for the second time. He took them last summer, but let's just say he's got a long way to go, and I wouldn't trust him uh, in a pool by himself. Uh, he can't swim yet. Now imagine we're hanging out, having fun at the pool. Uh, I'm inside the water, and Nathaniel is standing on the edge of the pool. And I say, hey, Nene, jump. I'll catch you. How does he make me look good in that moment? By trusting me, trusting what I said, and jumping. My dad can do anything. He trusts me. He trusts that I'm strong enough to catch him, and so he glorifies my massive guns. <laughs> Don't laugh too hard. On the flip side, what would he do to make me look very bad in that moment? Public pool. I'm saying the same thing. Nene, jump. I'll catch you. People are watching. How's this four-year-old going to react to his dad? Calling him into the pool. Nene runs away. Ah, scared. My dad can't catch me. That would make me look very bad in that moment. That would make me look very weak in that moment. And it's the same way with our faith, with our faith in God. We glorify God. We make him look really good when we trust him, when we jump into his arms, fully trusting what he has said. And that's verse 21, fully convinced that God was able, that he was able to do what he had promised. God is glorified when Abraham said, nothing is too hard for my God. He can give me and Sarah a baby boy. My God is able. And likewise, in our faith, God is glorified when we say, nothing is too hard for my God. He can wash away all my sin. Yes, even mine. Yes, even that sin. Yes, he can cleanse a foul sinner like me. My God is able. Number four, fourth characteristic of Christian faith is that it results in justification. It results in justification. Here's where we get to the heart of the message of chapter four. You see, chapter four isn't merely about faith. It's about faith in God, which results in him declaring you righteous. Verse 22. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Verse 22 is a quote from Genesis 15:6, that moment of Abraham's conversion, that verse that I always use when people ask me, how did people in the Old Testament get saved? Abraham believes the promise of God, and God counts his belief as righteousness. Now, this quote of Genesis 15:6 is something of a refrain throughout the entire chapter. It's quoted three times. Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Verse 9, is this blessing then for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And then verse 22, that is why faith was counted to him as righteousness. This quote of Genesis 15, 6 is woven throughout the entire chapter, repeated for emphasis. This chapter is not just about faith, but about faith that leads to imputed righteousness. And this idea of imputation is also woven throughout this passage. It's mentioned nine times 
in chapter 4. I get that because the word counted is used nine times in this chapter alone. So, I've dropped this big word on you, imputation. What is it? Well, it is an accounting term. You can call it crediting. Imagine you have a bank account, I have a bank account. Your bank account has zero dollars in it. My bank account has a hundred dollars in it. And if I were to impute my money to your account, I would take my hundred dollars and transfer it into your account so that now you have a hundred and I have zero. Spiritually speaking, we have spiritual accounts. The account of Jesus is full of righteousness. He lives a perfect life. Not a bad word comes out of his mouth, doesn't commit any sin, and he has perfect righteousness. In his spiritual account, our account, we have sin, imperfection, breaking God's laws. And so in this act of imputation, our sin is transferred over to Christ's account. And that's why he dies on the cross. Not for his own sin, but for our sin that is now imputed to him. And he dies as our substitute. He dies for our sin. And then his life of righteousness, which is in his account, he earned it, is now transferred over to our account. So that not only are our sins taken away, but positively we have perfect righteousness. This is God counting righteousness to us. This is the doctrine of imputation. This is justification. God declaring us right, not only cleansed from sin, but also positively having a righteousness, a righteousness that only comes through faith. So verse 22, that's what happened to Abraham, this imputation, this counting of righteousness to him. But then, as we said, verse 23, this wasn't written just for Abraham. This is where the tables are turned toward you. This is where Abraham becomes a giant arrow pointing to you. The life of Abraham is merely an illustration of the gospel. When God gives you a counterintuitive promise in the gospel, believe in me, just like Abraham, and you will be righteous. Even if your faith is small and weak, as long as it's genuine, God will count this righteousness of Christ to your account. When you're tempted to lean on your own understanding, trust in him, lean on him, then you will get this righteousness credited, counted to your spiritual bank account. And then this emphasis on the resurrection at the end. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for trespasses and raised for our justification. The beginning of verse 25, we get he was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus was given up to death on a cross to die for our sins, and we get that. But the end of verse 25 is what's strange, what's unfamiliar, what, what hits our ears wrong. He was raised for our justification. You would think that it would be he was crucified for our justification, but here we learn that it's a package deal. It has to be the death and resurrection of Jesus in order for us to be justified. Certainly his death is necessary. He must die to pay the punishment that we deserved. But it's also his resurrection. No resurrection, no justification. As 1 Corinthians 15 says, if he is not raised, we are still in our sins. Why? 
Because if he died and stayed dead, if his body's still in the tomb, then that means he was just a man. He was just like the other two thieves on the two crosses next to him. Just a man who was crucified that day. No saving power. No substitutionary death. Just a death. Just a normal death. But if he is raised, that means he is the son of God. And that his death is special. And his blood is special. That in his death, he dies for the sins of mankind. In his blood is forgiveness and salvation for all those who believe. And that can only come through one who is the son of God. The resurrection confirms that this was God's son. That he was fully man and fully God. Fully man to be the representative for mankind, and fully God to have a death that would actually take away sins of mankind. So in his resurrection, death loses, life wins. Sin loses, forgiveness wins. Satan loses, God wins. Imputation is accomplished. Salvation is accomplished. What are you placing your faith in tonight? See, we're all trusting in something. What do you trust for your life and your eternity? Are you trusting one who is trustworthy? Are you trusting one who can secure your life eternally? Charles Spurgeon tells the story of two men riding in a boat in a fast-flowing river. The currents are so strong that it capsizes the boat and both men fall into the river. The river swiftly takes these men downstream and downstream you see a waterfall on the bottom of which are jagged and sharp rocks. Anyone who falls down will surely fall to their death. And these men are quickly flowing to that waterfall. Some people around see what's happened, and they throw a rope to the two men. One man grabs onto the rope, and he is pulled to the shore. He is saved. They throw the rope to the second man. He grabs onto the rope. They pull him and while he's still in the water, something catches his eye. Uh, it's a log that has been lodged in the middle of the river. And in a split-second decision, he thinks the log looks more secure than the rope, and so he grabs onto the log. But in letting go of the rope and latching onto the log, the log becomes dislodged, and he continues flowing down the river and falls to his death. You see, both men held on to something. Both men trusted in something. But one led to life and one led to death. We all trust in something. What are you trusting in tonight? What are you holding on to? If you're holding on to Jesus tonight, I want to end by reminding you of who you're holding on to. If you're not a Christian here today, I want to end by telling you about the one that you could grab onto and hold on to and trust in tonight. And if you're a senior tonight, and this is your very last grace on campus, I want to end my last sermon to you by reminding you of who you're holding on to and who I encourage you to continue to hold on to for the rest of your life and into eternity. Who is it that we have placed our trust in? 
Jesus Christ, the anointed one, the son of man, yet son of God, the blessed hope, wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, deliverer, Emmanuel, God with us, faithful and true, the Holy One of Israel, the Holy One of God, the Prince of Life, the Savior of the world, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, the Master, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the consolation of Israel, the suffering servant, the one pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, a man of sorrows, the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of the Most High God, the heir of all things, the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who was dead and is now living, the root and descendant of David, David's son and yet David's Lord, the good teacher, redeemer, the word, the head of the church, the builder of the church, the bright and morning star, the bread of life, the light of the world, the door to salvation, the good shepherd, the true vine, the resurrection and the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the author and finisher of our faith, the great I am, the Christ, the son of the living God. He is the one that we sing about. He is the fount of every blessing, the rock of ages, our rock and our redeemer my song when enemies surround me, my hope when tides of sorrows rise, my joy when trials are abounding, this cornerstone, this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm, a great high priest whose name is love, my joy, my righteousness, the name that charms our fears and bids our sorrows cease, the matchless king of all, the king eternal, the high king of heaven, the perfect son of man, the true and better Adam, the Lord upon the tree, the lamb in victory, the glorious Christ. G-O-C, this is who we trust in.